them so much I'm thinking they might just start over again. Keep going. Huh? Yes. What do you say when you've made it through verse by verse the greatest book of doctrine in the Bible? I think all you can really say if you grasp the great truths in the book of Romans is praise God. Praise God for a salvation that's so rich and so free, so complete in every way. Praise God for a letter to us that explains everything, that explains us to ourselves, why we are the way we are, that explains Him, what He did for us, who He is, why we owe Him every bit of ourselves that we possess. And most of all, Romans has explained the great theme of the Bible, which is a righteous God saving unrighteous humanity. It's not pie-in-the-sky religious stuff, dogma. It is dogma in terms of the fact that it's truth. But it talks to you. It talks to all of us right where we live every day. Because every day that monster called sin confronts us. And every day Romans is relevant. What is that monster? Why is it so powerful? What can be done about it? What has been done about it? Everything that needs to be done, we learn, has been done. And all that remains left is to complete a process that is guaranteed, a process whose end we've already been promised will be completed to our glory. The most important question a human being can ask, we said at the very beginning of the book of Romans, almost a year and a half ago, and that's how long it's been. <laughs> I looked it up. <laughs> is how can a sinful man be right with a holy God? How can a sinful man be right with a holy God? That is the question. That's the question that matters the most. It's a question that every human being has to deal with. How can unrighteous, rebellious creatures find acceptance with an infinitely righteous pure, just, holy, almighty creator. Well, we learn that God, because of his incomprehensible love for us, has made a way for us to be right with him. A way that honors his righteousness and his hatred of sin, but at the same time restores us to him completely, as though we were truly righteous ourselves. And that's called the gospel. In Romans chapter 1, verse 16, Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. By faith, by trusting God, we can receive a righteousness that is not our own, that is given to us. And Romans chapters 1 through 3 goes deeply into the need of mankind, of every human being, for this righteousness, exposing us as the sinners that we are. Exposing us as sinners who are, in the language of chapter 1 verse 20, without Excuse. Do you remember that? We might think religion will help us out, but Paul says it doesn't. In chapter 2, verse 1, he says the religious are without 
excuse. Chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore you are without excuse. Every man of you who passes judgment, for in that you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. He says to the religious man, you who are morally upright in your own mind and you condemn other people and you look at them, and everyone does this, by the way. Everyone says, that person's so-and-so, and he's like this and that. And when, and when you say that and you are like that, guess what? You are condemned. Justly condemned by the holiness of God. For how dare you? Paul's fellow Jews pointed to their possession of God's law as a source of righteousness, but Paul points out that having the law only exposes sin all the more. That doesn't help. Romans chapter 3, verse 20, he says, because by the works of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. All the law does when you read the law of God is find out how little you keep it. And that has its advantages, but it's not saving in and of itself. Well, the good news shows up in chapter 3, verse 21. He says, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. There it is. That word justified in verse 24, we talked about quite a bit, as I recall. Justification, which means to be made right with God, to be right with God, is the theme from here all the way through chapter 4 and all the way through chapter 5. It explains what justification is. Justification is to be right with God is apart from works. But it is based on righteousness. But it's based on God's righteousness granted to those who believe. How can God do that? Chapter 5, verse 1, Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. How is through Christ who bore our sin upon the cross and grants us his righteousness? We can only be at peace with God through Christ because he is the source of divine righteousness. That is something to praise God for, is it not? In chapter 6 through 8, we have the subject of sanctification, the, the blessed gift of a transformed life. And Paul tells us in chapter 6 how to be holy. In chapter 7, he describes how hard it can be, how strong the struggle can be, what the fight is like. And in chapter 8, he describes the victory that comes as we live by the Spirit and the final victory, glory, which has all the weight and certainty of God's promise, God's power, and God's love behind it. Praise God for that. In chapters 9 through 11, we have more clearly a picture of God's sovereignty as he chooses and determines the course of events to his own glory, even our salvation. We can praise God for that. In chapters 12 through 15, we receive detailed descriptions of the Christian life, what a Christian looks like, so we can compare ourselves with it, find humility before it as we do that. 
and make the necessary changes to conform to God's idea of what a godly man is. Praise God for that. His saving grace, our transformation, our ultimate victory, it is all part of this wonderful package, this gift of salvation, which we never deserve, but which a merciful God bestows on us by his good grace. And all that's left to us at the end is really praise and thanksgiving for that. And that's how Romans ends, with a doxology. A doxology is a fancy way to say a hymn of praise. And that's found in Romans chapter 16, verse 25 through 27. But we have three verses left before we get to that. So, verse 21 through 23 we'll look at, and then we'll uh, jump to the very last part there. In Romans 16, 1 through 16, we looked at the greetings section, the hi there's. In Rome, to saying hi to the folks in Rome but in 21 through 23 we have the greetings from the church in Corinth where Paul is writing from and there's something wonderful here do you recall a few weeks ago we talked about the historical and personal markers that we find in the New Testament um, to demonstrate that these are authentic documents from real people in other words if you were inventing some religious text as there are many invented religious texts in the world even well, not as old as this, but there's 2nd and 3rd century Christian texts. They don't have historical weight to them. For one thing, they're not written by apostles or anything like that, even though some of them pretend to be. But there's, there's nothing historical about them. They just kind of float. They're out there. They're just doctrines or teachings or not. The Gospels, the Epistles, the, the letters of the New Testament have all kinds of these little historical markers laid into them. And something like the details in a greeting can lend historical weight to these letters because there are always, there are always uninformed and unbelieving opinions out there that Paul didn't write this, it came from some later time, and all of that kind of stuff. If you've ever taken a religion course in a college, you've heard all that stuff about the Bible. Oh, it was written later, and they didn't do that. If you watch some special about the Bible on A&E or History Channel, or whatever, that's usually the opinions that are offered. Oh, yes, well, of course, they couldn't have written that in that time, and all, all those kinds of arguments. It's... Uh, those attacks have been made on the Bible to discredit it for two or three hundred years now, and it's um, a lot of pseudo-intellectual nonsense is really what it is when you look at it. So God put these historical markers in the Bible to authenticate the text. For example, Jerusalem was completely destroyed, thankfully, in AD 70. I'm not thankful that Jerusalem was destroyed. That was a horrible thing. But from our point of view in terms of the authenticity of the record it's important because the Romans turned Jerusalem into a pile of rubble in AD 70 some scholars used to say that the Gospels are so sophisticated Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that they had to have been written much later past the lifespan of the Apostles sometime in the 2nd century or even into the 3rd century of the Church of Seven. you still hear idiots say that today and I mean idiot in a very polite way but <laughs> But I mean, they say that because they've got an agenda of unbelief rather than relying on a historical facts. Because the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, demonstrate an incredible knowledge of the details of what Jerusalem was like before it was destroyed. So it has to be written within the lifespan and of eyewitnesses to the city itself before it was destroyed, because how would they have known what it was like? And archaeology since then has dug up all this stuff, for example, the Pool of Siloam in John's Gospel where the people would come to get healed and all that. They found that. See, after Jerusalem was destroyed, nobody would have known about that. They wouldn't have known about the people that came there. They wouldn't have known about that pool. 
you found that pool. The pavement described in the Gospels where Pontius Pilate rendered his judgments, they found that, see? The guys that wrote the Gospels knew about that. Anybody after AD 70 couldn't have known about that. Those are historical markers. They bear witness to the Gospels' composition during the lifetime of eyewitnesses. God is no fool. He put all that stuff in there. We have a similar marker here, something quietly hidden for many, many centuries, waiting to be unveiled in an age of skepticism. Here it is. Now, the church has always taught that Paul wrote Romans from Corinth in Greece. There's all kinds of reasons to believe that, even from the text of Romans itself. Here's what the greeting says, verse 21. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you, and so do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who write this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, greets you, and Quartus, the brother. Isn't that exciting? <laughs> now, let's just run through this real quick. And verse 21 is one of the reasons we believe that Romans came from Greece, obviously. The men mentioned here are part of Paul's ministry team in uh, Greece. He's mentioned in Acts chapter 19 and Acts chapter 20, these names. Timothy, of course, is familiar to all of us because of the New Testament letters that are written to him. Um, Tertius actually adds his own line in here. Verse 22, I once heard Chuck Swindoll go on for about 20 minutes about Tertius, who, about whom we know nothing. But the fact that his name is third, that's what Tertius means, it's the Latin word for third. So he's probably, you know like Jack Cracky calls his children number one, son number two, son number three, kind of like Charlie Chan used to do. That Tertius was actually named that way. Ah, Tertius, he's third. So Swindoll goes on and on about what it's like to be third in the family and all that stuff and how he got to write Romans, whatever, I don't know. But um, the interesting thing about this, he says, I, Tertius, who write this letter, greet you in the Lord. Tertius did not author the book of Romans, but he's the writer. And what Paul would do, as many people did in the ancient world, he dictated it. You know, he, Paul was walking around pacing and thinking up incredible theology and God revealing it to him and he's speaking it and Tertius is writing it down. So when, in the greetings, Tertius writes his own line in here. I, Tertius, who write this letter, greet you too. You know, that's what's going on here. So uh, the technical name for that job is an amanuensis, but you, you might call him a secretary or a scribe, somebody that writes down the verbal words spoken by the, the author. And often Paul would like sign his own name at the end, but somebody else would write it down. But the treasure is in verse 23. Gaius, host to me and to the whole church, greets you. There's another house church. I talked about it a few weeks ago. Erastus, the city treasurer, greets you and Quartus the brother. Now, Erastus sort of stands out here because he is a Christian and a government official. The oikonomos tes poleos, the steward of the city, is the way the Greek says it, or the treasurer. Now, that's interesting because here's a man of prominence in a well-known pagan city, a very ancient pagan city, in the first century, who is openly a Christian. That gives us a little interesting insight into the, the church that you could actually be a government official and belong to the Christian church in the apostolic age. And this is a little before the Neronian persecutions started. But there's more. 1929, in Corinth, archaeologists unearthed a first century pavement, a bit of a road, a roadway in the city of ancient Corinth. And in this pavement, with a Latin inscription carved into the stone, the way we might write something in wet cement. And the words are, first century pavement, 
Erastus, procurator for public buildings, laid this pavement at his own expense. You say, what's the big deal about that? That's life. Real guy. Real person. Government official, first century. Doing what the government officials do, building buildings, building roads, improving life. And here he is. Just a greeting in a book almost 2,000 years old. He was a real person. See, this is a real letter written to real people by a real apostle. It isn't some composed thing that isn't made up. These things like the greetings section, you say, why is a greeting in God's word? Because it's a letter to real people, from real people, to real people, in, in the context of a vital church ministry which was taking over the world for Christ. Real stuff. Very exciting. The gospel changed Erastus' life forever. This Greek found reconciliation with the living God, the God whose people had never known. So Romans is, is truth for people then and now. It is what God has done for us, for, for all men. And that makes Paul burst forth into a hymn of praise. So let's look at Paul's doxology, the or hymn of praise, which closes out this, this wonderful letter. Now, this is one of those Apostle Paul sentences, okay? So, um, very long, <laughs> very long sentence, packed with stuff, with truth, something that you have to unwrap. But here it is, verse 25. Now, to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested and by the scriptures of the prophets according to the commandment of the eternal God has been made known to all the nations leading to obedience of faith to the only wise God through Jesus Christ be the glory forever. Amen. Now that's a sentence. How do you do with a sentence like that? Well, let me tell you what you do with it. You go back to basic English and... First, you find the core sentence. Remember how you find the core sentence when you have a long sentence? Remember all that stuff? What's the main subject and the main verb? Remember all that? That's what you do with a sentence like this. You find out what the main idea is, and you sort of throw away, just temporarily, you sort of set aside all the extraneous stuff, and you get down to the core idea. And we can find that by eliminating everything extra. Now, the subject is way at the end, in verse 27. It says, To the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be the glory. The glory is the nominative case noun here. That's the subject, the glory. The subject of the sentence is the glory. Now, Greeks don't do word order like we do. They can throw subjects anywhere they want. So, it's all in the way, it's the way the word is structured, where you find the subject and the verb and all that. But the glory is the subject of the sentence. So, we're talking about glory. What about glory? The glory be. That's the verbal idea. Be the glory. Now, go way back to the beginning, verse 25. The glory be to him. That's your basic sentence. The glory be to him. All the rest, the subordinate clause, who, who is able, and all the prepositional phrases, according to, verse 25, according to, again, verse 25, and according to, verse 26, that's all extra stuff. It's important, but it's extra for right now. You can drop all of that. Verse 27 picks up and restates who he started with in verse 25, who is the, the to him. The glory be to him, in verse 27, it begins, says, to the only wise God. That's the same 
ideas the two hymns. So the basic sentence is this. Glory be to who? The only wise God. That's, that's the main idea. The main idea. Glory forever to the only wise God. The glory of God. That is a fitting way to end the greatest book of theology that's ever been written. To the only wise God be glory forever. So all that has been said about the gospel, about God providing our salvation, all of that in the book of Romans is to the glory of God. And that is fitting for all things are right and proper only as they serve to glorify God. All things. Nothing is right that is not rightly related to Him. But Paul has some very specific things in mind with regard to God's glory and his desire that God be glorified. And that's where we start plugging back in the subordinate clauses and the prepositional phrases here. So if you hate grammar, don't worry. All we're saying is read the rest of it. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> Just read the rest of it. Okay? So back to verse 25. Let's add each element back in. Now to him who is able to establish you. Paul is ascribing glory to him who is able to establish you. God has the power, that word able is the Greek word dunamis, dunamis, dynamite, we get our word dynamite, power, it's the word of power, ability, it's kind of a gentle way of saying it. God has the power to establish you, to set you in a fixed place, to place you on a rock, if you will, a place from where you cannot be moved because you are held there by divine power, right? How can we be made so secure, so firmly established? Verse 25, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. It is the gospel that we find in Romans that is so profoundly establishing, that establishes us. You recall the words of Romans 8? Remember Romans 8, 28? We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, who are called according to His purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Do you remember that? And then Paul says, what shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, what? Right, who is against us? He who did not spare his own Son, but freely delivered him up for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? That's it. God's work, salvation is God's work from the beginning to the end, and that's why it is unshakable. It is established. He who is able to establish you. Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. There's no more firmly established place than being in the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel, Christ bearing our sins on the cross and granting us his righteousness, establishes us in the love of God. And it's unshakable. 
So being established by the power of God is the great benefit of the gospel to us. Something never to be taken for granted. These words sound very much like Jude, out of that little epistle Jude at the very end of the New Testament, right before the book of Revelation. That little epistle ends with another doxology, which has the same basic idea. In fact, it's kind of a popular, it used to be a popular song. We should sing it sometimes, it's a great song. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Wow. That's a sentence and a half. That God can make us stand in the presence of His glory when by guilt we should shrink away from it in terror and in grief and seek to bury ourselves under hills and mountains like the people will do that don't know Christ. Instead of that, he makes us stand in the presence of his glory blameless, with great joy, it says. How can that be? How can sinners such as us look forward to that day with such joy? Look at your own life. How can you do it? To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, he says. That's how. That's how. Through Christ. Jesus Christ, the all-sufficient Savior. Sometimes we're tempted to discouragement, but this, this truth is nothing less than a cause for boundless, limitless optimism. Because God is able. God is able through Christ to do that, to establish you. And if you have the tiniest spark of faith, it must be enough to go on. It's got to be enough to carry on, to try again, to pick yourself up when you fall, and move forward, to plead for grace, and having received mercy, to try again, because He establishes you. He does it. So don't quit. He is able to establish you, and He will be glorified in doing that. He will be. Paul says we are established according to Paul's gospel, and the preaching of Jesus Christ. Then he goes on, verse 25, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past. Now, I know what he's talking about. I'm kind of curious as to why he mentions all this kind of detail here, but I, I think I know. A mystery is something that was hidden but is now revealed. Whenever you read the, the word mystery in the New Testament, it's not something secret. It's something revealed. It's not like the way we use the word mystery. It was secret. Now it's revealed. That's what mystery means to the Greeks. Paul says three things about this mystery. This thing made known. One, he says, it's been kept secret for long ages past. Thousands of years it was hidden. Second, he says, now it's manifested and by the scriptures of the prophets. So it's known and now that we know, we can look at the prophets and go, oh yeah, it was there all along. He has ordained its revelation at this time, Paul says, although it was not understood before Jesus' time. It is indeed consistent with and taught by the prophets of the Old Testament. And number three, according to the eternal God, it has been made known to all nations, he says, leading to the obedience of faith. Verse 26 there. And he never really says here what the mystery is, but it is what Romans is all about. God reconciling all men, Jew and Gentile, together in one body 
of redemption through Christ. If you read Ephesians chapter 2 and chapter 3, he gives full explanation of that. The mystery is the body of Christ. You and Gentile together reconciled to God through Christ's blood. That's what it is. And, but the point here is not to go into the details of the mystery. It's not that one aspect of it. It's happenstance. There's not one element of it was decided on the fly. That's what he wants to say. None of it was accidental. None of this is God just saying, oh, what am I going to do? I've got to fix this situation. I'm going, to, I'm going to come up with this idea. Oh, I think we'll go here. No, he's saying that long ages past, this was already decided. It was already known. The plan was already set. There's no surprise about any of it. No surprises about you. You think you failed. It's not a surprise to God. He still saves and establishes you. Loves you. All of it, every aspect of salvation and the gospel and the work of Christ as Savior was determined before the foundation of the world and unfolded in the perfect timing of God's sovereign plan. As he needed it to be unfolded, he unfolded it. And nothing's going to change what he determined to do. So he is in complete governance of the whole salvation scenario. That's why he's bringing this up. So you know that. So that your confidence is there. It's all his. always has been. So how can we doubt his ability then to establish us? Because it's all determined in divine power and wisdom to the only wise God. So if you're discouraged and weighed down, he is able to establish you according to the gospel. Know the gospel. Love the gospel. Breathe the gospel. Cling to the gospel because that's everything. Christ has borne away the sins of all who believe in him for eternal life and made them secure. And that's you if you've trusted him. To be established by the eternal plan of God and the gospel is to be at peace. It's to have a wellspring of joy deep within. To have a limitless source of strength to continue in God's will if you avail yourself of that strength. So cling to the gospel. In Ephesians 1.5, Paul says, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. That's a great sentence too. A lot of good sentences in the Bible, huh? That God would do this draws from the believer's heart praise. And so praise is the only fitting response. Praise and unrelenting gratitude. Glory be to him who is able to establish you. Glory forever. The last word of the long sentence is forever. Glory forever. And it will go on forever because we will go on in him. In glory. So praise God now in adversity and the sweeter the praise will be in glory. Praise now shows trust that he is the only wise God, that you believe that, who in Christ has given us all the answers we need and a salvation that cannot fade away. So let's praise him in prayer and then uh, after I pray let's stand together and sing the doxology. If you don't know it, it's 625 in your hymnal. It's pretty well known. If you were raised like a little Lutheran like me, you sang it every week. Let's have a word of prayer.
Our great Father, we thank you. We praise you, God, for our salvation, for the salvation revealed in the book of Romans. That we are justified by the blood of Jesus Christ apart from works. That there's nothing we can do to please you in ourselves. And yet in that justification comes a transforming new life that energizes and directs our hearts towards you, draws us to you, sanctifies, and ultimately will glorify us. For that, we thank you. For the book we've studied, we thank you. For Jesus Christ, our dear Savior, we thank you. We give you great praise and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.